Genesis chapter number 2 in our Bibles as we continue. Sort of the foundations that we began with Exodus, or Genesis, Exodus 2. And let's read a couple verses and pray together, and I hope, I truly hope all of us will listen carefully to what the Word of God has to say to our hearts. Verse 11, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, then he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Father, please help us tonight to understand that these things, as Jesus said, these things were written for our learning and our admonition. We thank you for these things. And we need them. And I just ask that you'll help us to be strong tonight, to, to be alert, and to be sensitive to the teaching of your spirit. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here in last week's study, you will recall that this man, Moses, was really the product of his parents' faith, as well as the faith of those wonderful Hebrew midwives. Joseph is gone. And the new pharaoh, not of the Hyksos dynasty now, instead of understanding or appreciating these Hebrews, the Bible tells us that, as we noted, he fears them. And in his fear, his wisdom, all his wise ideas, tells him to limit the Jews' influence by murdering little male babies. One of those babies was spared, again, because of their faith. He was therefore raised in Pharaoh's palace, adopted as a prince, and as we just read, he is now a fully grown adult. You may also recall that in Stephen, the New Testament, Stephen's spirit-filled sermon in the book of Acts, he reveals something remarkable about Moses the man. I want you to look at it again from the book of Acts, chapter number 7, familiar words. Verse 18 says, "...till another king arose which knew not Joseph." The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children, to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned, or taught, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was a mighty in words and in deeds. Now, folks, as we noted, this is Stephen preaching just before he's about to die, by the way. And we know that he was full of the Holy Ghost because it says so in that very chapter. And as we noted last time, the word learned here basically means everything you think it means. Moses was trained. He was educated. He was instructed. And in fact, as we read, he was famous, famous in Egypt for being mighty in words and in deeds according to the wisdom of those very same Egyptians. So that note this, at 40 years of age, this man has the equivalent training of a Ph.D. And that from the very civilization that was unrivaled in that ancient world for its arts and its sciences and its engineering. And of course, we know from history, and we know from modern research even today, that the ancient Egyptians had eaten very well of the tree of knowledge, so to speak, so that they excelled. They excelled in the entire world, in philosophy, in language, in medicine. 
They had the technology and the industry to build the pyramids that are a marvel to this very moment of, of engineering. Two, two and a half million blocks of limestone. Think of that. Two and a half million. Those blocks of limestone weighed about five tons apiece. And those make up the Great Pyramid alone. And when Moses saw it with his own eyes, they were at that time already a thousand years old. So you have this man, Moses. He is a bona fide, dyed-in-the-wool, certified, accredited Egyptian. However, with all of Egypt's enlightenment and all of its wisdom, their hearts were dark as ever, and they were, spiritually speaking, blind. Just like our country, with all of our advances, and we are far superior than any nation in the history of the world, in weaponry, still the hearts are dark and blind. This highlights something else that the Holy Spirit placed in Stephen's heart and therefore in his word. I want you to notice again on the screen, his sermon continues in verse 23. And when he, Moses, was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? It came into his heart to do something good. It came into his heart to do the right thing. And no doubt by the grace and the mercy of God, it came into his heart. Verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong. By the way, I want you to think about the word wrong. That's an important word. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him. You see that up there? He defended him. And then it goes on to say, and avenged him. He was suffering the wrong treatment. What this Egyptian was doing to him was wrong. So Moses defended him, and then he avenged him that was oppressed, and then, it says, he smote the Egyptian. In other words, now follow this. All Egyptians, but especially royalty in those days, were taught and trained that foreigners and slaves were, quote, these are the actual words in the hieroglyphics, quote, living dead. They were, according to their own ancient writings, worse than donkeys, uh, worthy of nothing but utter contempt. That again, quote, a thousand of them was worth no more than one of them. One of the lines in the ancient hieroglyphics said this, they work among the soil because they are soil. Mere dirt to be washed from your hands. And so much for that old, ancient, rich culture that we hear about that exists with the Aztecs and the, and the, uh, the Ming dynasties and all of these rich culture, and so it goes. For Moses, brainwashed in that very same system, so that for him to go out and visit and have compassion, visit and have compassion on a Hebrew, it just didn't make any sense. Actually, if you think about it, it does make sense when you consider Moses' heart. At 40 years of age, it came into his heart, not just his head. It came into his heart to visit his own brethren. And what happens when he does that? Look at our text. Well, not look at our text. I got another verse in Acts. Verse 24. Put that up there for me, guys, would you? It says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him, and avenged him that was oppressed, and smote the Egyptian. 
Now watch what it says next. For Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them, but they understood not. Now this is an amazing, very interesting statement that Stephen makes about Moses. Because it shows that what was in Moses' heart wasn't just curiosity about the Jews, but it was compassion and deliverance and some spiritual insight as well. After all, who better to deliver? Who better to lead and plead for the Hebrews than this man Moses himself? Moses was a prince by this point. And he didn't just have friends in high places. He was the friend in the highest of places. The only thing is, if that was Moses' plan, he has to change it now because he's just killed an Egyptian guard. Now, Exodus 2, and again, verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses is grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian, smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, we read all those other words, right? In the Word of God. That he defended him. That it was a wrong thing that was happening. That we avenged him. He was going to be beaten literally to death. I'll remind you again what else we know about this smiting from the Bible that Moses was doing something that we would give medals for doing. In other words, by not standing idly by while a slave is beaten to death, Moses shows that what was in his heart was deep in his heart. It was really in his heart. And after 40 years of privilege and power and prestige and possessions, after a lifetime nearly, Moses makes this amazing Amazing choice. Think about this. It came into Moses' heart to push himself away from the banquet of Pharaoh's table, to walk out of that gilded palace, to leave all of the comforts of Pharaoh, and rather put his eyes on others, to take his, his feet to the brickyards and then open his ears to the ears of to the cries of the suffering in his brethren. It's an amazing thing. Verse 13, And when he went out of the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove or fought together. And he said unto him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? In other words, Moses, who's a prince, by the way, who's an authority, says, Why are you guys arguing? He was trying to be a mediator. Verse 14, And he said, that is, one of the, one of the Hebrews said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. He said, Wow, Pastor, he should have just stayed out of it. He got himself into trouble. Actually, I kind of think of it as he got himself back into battle. But pastor, look at it. They, they all, he only made them mad. Yeah, but you know what? If you think about it, it sure beats sitting on a pillow in the palace eating delicacies waiting one day to become a mummy. I said this last week, but I'd rather be in the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Elijah than in some dusty old coffin at the bottom of a pyramid. Amen? So yeah, it got him into trouble, and they were angry with him. 
I thank God that it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, no matter how much trouble it got him into. And sometimes for us, just let's push ourselves away from our comforts. And let, let God bring something into our hearts that would be a blessing to others, even if it costs us something. Chapter 2, verse 15. Now when, Mo, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. Of course he did. When he heard that Moses had taken a side and the side was against Egypt, he says he's got to die. Because remember, Pharaoh is God. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. You know, the last line says, Moses fled from Pharaoh. And he dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. You have to stop sometimes and think about what all that means. The Bible just gives us these truths, these facts, and you're supposed to listen to them and think about them. Here is a man. You have this picture in your mind, I hope. In one day, he's the prince of Egypt. In one day, he's at least second in control in charge of this mighty world empire. But in that same day, he goes from there to finding himself in a desert. Do you know what happens to men who lose everything at the age of 40? I've counseled a few. You really don't want to be around them. Do you know what happens to men who get everything they've ever wanted at the age of 40 and realize it, it's meaningless? The word is misery. And so here's a man who he's rejected. He loses everything. He had everything. He loses everything. He's also being rejected in 48 hours. As far as we know, Moses experienced both everything and now nothing. The Jews, his brethren, rejected him. Pharaoh, which represents all of Egypt, has rejected him. His own blood has turned on him. See, turned on him. Remember when the Bible says that he looked both ways and he saw no man and then he defended him and he, he slew him. And then it says that Pharaoh, quote, heard this thing. Verse 15, he heard about it. How did he hear about it? If no one's around, how did he hear? Well, there are only two other people there besides Moses. One was an Egyptian. He ain't talking. He's buried in the sand. And the other was a Jew. So that it was, it was that blabbermouth, Hebrew, whose life he saved, that apparently told other Jews. And somebody, some of them, snitched. And that's always what happens. And now Moses is wanted, and not just wanted dead or alive, just dead. Just kill him. Moses knows it. He knows their system. And so the Bible says he flees for his life, and he goes into the wilderness of Midian, and he sits down by a well. Now again, think about this for a minute. He sits down by a well. You talk about a long, long fall in a short amount of time. Reared in the palace, Nursed in the lap of luxury. Traveled in the school of despots, trained. Favored by a princess. And with a crown in his prospect for himself. In one moment, this man Moses 
chooses to be identified with the people of God because he says, God, that's what he said. The Bible says, God will use me. And in so doing, instantly he has to embrace adversity. He champions liberty. He abandons all of that ease. And he soon becomes a wandering fugitive. So again, folks, in one day, he goes from all of Egypt's glory all the way down and finds himself now at a shepherd's well. And I can see him there, exhausted, alone, and head hung down, and needing water. Forty years of age, something like that happens. And just as surely as Moses had been in training in all of Egypt's so-called wisdom and schools, now he's in training again. But now he's in training in God's school. You've heard me say many times, I'm sure, that for me, Moses is the greatest leader of men the world has ever seen. And I do believe that, but it's not for nothing that we believe that. Because if you think about it, and you're going to study this with us in the next few weeks, the next 40 years of Moses' life, now think about that, 40 years he is about to undergo the greatest preparation and schooling that any leader in the world has ever had. That's one reason I think he's the greatest leader. Verse 16, look at it. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, seven brides for seven brothers, right? Well, one handsome prince, charming, is about to show up for one of those daughters. Let's read it again. The priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. By the way, this harassment by these nomadic shepherds, it was so much of a problem that these same young women were constantly affected by it. You'll notice the question at the end of verse 18. The, his, their father said, how is it that you're come so soon today? How'd you, how'd you get all that work done so quickly? Well, this day was different than every other day. Because incredibly, this same Moses, who could have been sitting there, licking his wounds, feeling self-defeated, who, who no doubt said to himself, this is what happens. I'm by this well. I've lost everything. This is what happens when I stick up for someone else. Incredibly, he sits by that well and he's going to do it again. He's going to stick up for somebody else. And again, he plays the role of a deliverer. Verse 17, and the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them. Moses stood up and helped those girls. I, tell you, I told you he's Prince Charming. So that he used his Egyptian training, including his undoubted military self-defense training. He helped these women. He drove off these thugs, drove them away. And I'm sure these girls, I mean, anytime a new guy shows up anyway, out there in the desert, but this isn't just any guy. I mean, his, his fingernails are clean. He's got a good quality haircut. He stands up. And then he does even more than that. 
Verse 17 again, and the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Now, in case you're wondering, this is unheard of in the ancient world. This was the quintessential, just look all through the Bible, it's woman's work. The woman of the it's woman's work. In the ancient world, I heard Charles Barkley the other day say something about, why don't women have wristwatches? Because there's a clock on the stove. <laughs> Who clapped? Man, you're in bad shape, bro. Yeah, well, I, I didn't say it. Charles Barkley said it. I don't believe that at all. Woman's work. Yeah, it was. The well. But you, you see this, right? There's something about this man. Something about this man, Moses. He's just a deliverer. He is a servant. And you'll notice how they, all the ladies, explain when they go home, because they no doubt ran home. They got an early start because Moses helped them and because they're excited about some news. And the Bible says that they, all of them, sort of tell their dad. Verse 18, and when they came to rule their father, he said, how is it that you come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. He gave the girls water. Now, let me stop here for a moment and say this. Rule's daughters immediately identified this stranger as what? An Egyptian. It says in verse 19, and they said an Egyptian. Why did they ID Moses as an Egyptian? Well, we all know why. I mean, we know he was a Hebrew because we read the first chapter. But the answer is very simple. He had had 40 years, 40 years of, of Pharaoh's training, the kingdom's training and influence. And even though Egypt was a strange land, as the Bible says, for the Jews, up until this point, it was home for Moses. Of course, this new school that Moses has entered now out in the desert is going to change all of that in an almost unbelievable way. And the lessons from this are, are critical and priceless. Verse 20, and he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Man, that's exactly what a father-in-law would say, right? Why did you bring him here? You let him go? This guy? Mr. Perfect? He said unto his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Oh, Rule knows a good potential son-in-law. And he's perfectly willing to give this, this stranger and this wanderer a place to stay as long as it takes. And ultimately, do, Moses does become a part of that very family. Verse 21, And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Ah, you see the last line? I have been a stranger in a strange land. However much time has elapsed between verses 20 and verse 22, Moses has already learned leadership 101, and that is identify with your followers. And Moses was learning what all children of Israel had known and experienced. He himself was also a stranger 
in a strange land. The Hebrew construct of this sentence right here, this whole line, means that Moses was referring to Egypt itself. But notice what else God is teaching this man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now wait a minute. In chapter 2, Moses arrives in Midian as a single man, but he's a prince, he's an Egyptian, he's a soldier, he's an engineer. By verses 21 and verses 22, he becomes a father, a husband, a sojourner, and now a shepherd. And of course, folks, as a husband, he would learn how to love and how to provide for his wife. As a father, he would learn how to how to nurture and discipline and protect the weak. As a shepherd, he would learn even more. As you know, sheep are not extremely bright. They need someone to lead them to food and to water, and especially way out there in a dangerous place like the wilderness and the desert. They're also easy target for predators. They need constant protection. They're prone to wander, and so they need someone to bring them back to safety. It was Asaph who wrote in Psalm 77, 20, Thou lettest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses. Asaph, the psalmist, saw that he was a shepherd. Isaiah 63, 11 says, Then he remembered Moses, saying, Where is he that brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of the flock? Now, why is that important? That Moses has become a shepherd because of something that we read way back in our other study in Genesis. Genesis 46, I'll put on the screen for you. For every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. You talk about a fall. In other words, it may have seemed to Moses, in fact to the entire world, that 40 years in the backside of the desert which basically means the wilderness and the worst part of the desert, it may have seemed that with a whole bunch of sheep was a waste of time for a renaissance man like Moses. This man was groomed, trained. He should be a general somewhere. He should be a king, a pharaoh. It wasn't a waste of time. All of these years of feeding and defending and rescuing, all of these years as a husband and a son-in-law and a father, Moses would have to learn not to be a pampered prince. He would have to learn to be faithful in the little things long before he could be faithful in the big thing. And of course, all four of these decades in his life were spent where? Again, the backside of the desert. You know, one thing about a desert, think about this, you know this, one thing about a desert, it is long, quiet, dark nights. There's nothing else going on. It's solitude of the highest order, so there's really just you and God's creation and God. So that it is as if Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. And then 40 years in Midian learning to be nothing. And then it will be 40 years in the wilderness learning that it doesn't matter the other two because his God is everything. He was really in school for his whole life. You know who else is still in school? Right here and right there. 
You'll always be in school. That is, in God's school. This is why Moses' life is a reminder to me, beloved, to be patient with God's timetable. I was thinking about this. Moses actually spent two years of preparation for every one year of ministry. Two for one. And I'm not talking about two years of, you know, two to one of seminary and Bible college and some leadership position. This was 40 years, at least two to one, of daily, routine, menial tasks and labor and trusting. 40 years of family first, shepherding, fathering, laboring, serving, and through all of it. I'm telling you, beloved, through all of it, you will see the hand of God ensuring that His promise of redemption that we studied throughout the book of Genesis is marching on. From the moment that Jacobed placed her baby in the Nile way back in Egypt, from that moment and before, you see the hand of God making sure that His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled, that there will be a Savior and a Messiah. The only reason we're here tonight. And by the way, speaking of Egypt, you'll notice that the last part of chapter 2 shifts the scene from Midian back to Egypt. Verse 23, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. You know what that reminds me of, by the way? When Herod the king died. The angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, remember, in Egypt, because Egypt received Joseph and Mary. And the angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, they are dead, which sought the young child's life. Gone. Herod, dead. It is nothing new, and it's not unique to us that people suffer that lives are afflicted by the foolish, wicked decisions of tyrants and despots. You say, why is this happening? Our leaders, look, that's nothing new. Caesar, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Kim Jong-un, the list goes on. These people, they strut their way through power. They usually with short-lived power, and then regardless, they will always, always keep that power until they die. But what the Bible is showing us is that they always die. Their power is always short-lived. And what's vital about that, what's powerful about that, is what God is about to show Moses. God is about to reveal something. Remember, Pharaoh is God. But he died. God died. I know they bury all of his stuff with him in the bottom of a pyramid so they can have it in the afterlife, and they put coins in his eyeballs and all that so he has some money in the afterlife, but he's dead. God is dead. So what is he going to show Moses about the true God? It is when he comes, and you'll see this in the days ahead, when he's come and Moses is told that God is, quote, the I am. Whom shall I say is sending me? And he says, Tell them that I am the I. My name is the I am. He is. That means that God is eternal. And remember what he says, I am the God of the living. I'm not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And he goes on to say, as you'll see, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wait a minute. If you're the God of the living and you're the God of Abraham, what does that say about Abraham? He's alive. 
He's not buried somewhere in some sand permanently. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. To this night, they're alive. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living because he's eternal. Look at verse 23 again. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Last week we noted all those, those amazing verbs, the activity that's there. It seemed as if God was nowhere to be found. But all along, in reality, he was remembering, he heard, he looked, he had respect. That's four active verbs in one narrative. So that who's the real deliverer? Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire. And the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. Now look, I know Hollywood loves to take this story, and sometimes even our children's storybooks like to take this story, and it's cute. But please understand that there's nothing cute about this at all. The God of the universe, there's a reason for every part of this, the Holy Spirit revealing these little details. The God, creator of the universe, is about to come down to earth and establish a people that will bring forth the Savior of the world. He's about to dwell with man, the God of the universe. How does he do it? How does the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob come down and dwell in the midst of Moses? And God says, well, any old desert bush will do. Any old scrub, an old stunted, bowed acacia bush full of thorns. The kind of bush that grows everywhere, wild in that desert. That's all that the Creator needs Every time I turn on Christmas Eve and they show the big Christmas Eve service in the Vatican and you see the gold and the trillion dollar vault they have there and those giant columns with the serpents around them and just the pomp and the purple. I think about this. God doesn't look down and go, I think I'll go there. That's, that's beautiful. That's a palace. An old stunted bush. It's not some gorgeous cypress tree it's not a majestic cedar of Lebanon. It's not some impressive redwood. No, God is sending a message. God wants this shepherd to know, and any old shepherd to know, that God will dwell with them, that God can use them, that God will meet with them. I'll remind you that Moses was 40. He's in his midlife crisis. He has nothing now, shepherd, sheep. It's all washed up. That was then. Now he's 80. 80? He's 80 years of age and far from being unusable in life. Moses is now more prepared than ever, both to know God and to be used by God. 
So here's this common everyday bush, and just like that common everyday staff that he will hold. The ordinary becomes the miraculous whenever God is in it. In this case, the bush is on fire. And again, there is nothing remarkable about that. I mentioned Sunday we were stationed in Wichita Falls, Texas, and I was a bit of a fire bug, and we had these tumbleweeds that would come all through our yard all the time. You ever set one on fire? They're awesome. For about 60 seconds. Set them on fire, and the wind blows them away, and it's sparking everywhere. I mean, that was usual. That was typical. They burn fast and furious but not for very long, and you can be sure that Moses had seen many a desert shrub on fire. They would set them on fire to help light the heavier wood. And in his 40 years, that was another big deal, but not this one. This one's different. This one's burning, but it was never burnt. So Moses looks at it and he thinks, i got to get close to this thing. What kind of wood is this? What kind of fuel is this? That one little bush... God is going to say so much revelation about who He is, about creation, about who we are. That one little common burning bush, God is going to throw back the curtain and the veil and teach us tonight and Moses in that one night that He is light, that He is self-existent, that He is all-powerful and something else. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. You know, God knows your name tonight. By the way, verse 2 says, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire. Well, verse 4 says, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. Who is the angel of the Lord? Verse 5. And he said, draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. And the place where thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, folks, please don't miss this. And we'll close. Again, this is not just he took off his shoes, his sandals, because it's holy ground. This is not just a cute little part of the story. The word holy, you see there in verse 5, that's the first time it's found in the Bible. I'm telling you, this is also a foundational book. This is the first time the word holy is found in the Bible and out of, it's the first out of nearly 600 times that this same word will be used. The Hebrew word is kobesh. It simply means separate, different, sanctified, set apart. And here, beloved, is the very first thing that God wants Moses to understand, even before he tells him his name. God wants Moses to know this, and God wants us to know this. This is, the, this is the dawning of redemption's revelation. He says, Moses, you take your shoes off. Now, wait a minute. It's just sand. It's just dirt. But now it's holy because of God's presence. God has sanctified it. 
so that God immediately reminds Moses that man is a sinner. That man is lost. He is not holy. And God wants him to know that his distinction presents a dilemma. And that dilemma is separation. I am holy. You're on holy ground. Take your shoes off. And of course, what's happened since that moment and some even before, is that some people deal with this dilemma that God is holy and man is not. They deal with this dilemma by exaggerating their own holiness. I'm not that bad. And so that's the basis of all false religion. It says, I'm good enough for God. I'm good enough for God. I'm practically a God myself. Others deal with this dilemma, and it is an eternal dilemma, by minimizing God's holiness. Well, he's just the old man upstairs. JC, you know. They try to bring God down to man's level. This is the scourge of in our country right now. It's the scourge of religion and Christian religion, Christianity in our country. God is just like good time rock and roll, deity just like one of us. It's also man's motive for idolatry. If man gets to make things and animals into God, how holy can these things be? They're not really holy. They're not really sacred. But they're God for us. Moses was trained for 40 years and taught that bats and beetles and crocodiles and foxes were all gods. But not so now, Moses, not with Jehovah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And no, he's not just like one of us. And no, he's not like anything else he has ever created. God is holy. He is perfect. He is light in a a world of darkness. And it is only in his mercy and in his grace and in his, his love that he hears the cries of his people. He uses a simple staff, a lowly bush in the desert, and an unknown shepherd pulls them out to deliver the ones who are in bondage to sin. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. As you'll see, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And as we continue to see this unfolding, glorious revelation, plan of redemption, we can see, Father, that these details in your word all have deep, deep spiritual, eternal meaning. And I pray we'll grasp them, knowing that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Knowing that, Father, this is your word and that we are here tonight because it is real. And you are the God of the living. And we thank you for eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.